There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Jessica Smalley, Mark Boris's producer. Far out. Thank you so much for sticking around for the show for 2022 because it was our biggest year to date. Mark and I wanted to listen back to your favourite episodes from 2022. But before we kick off the countdown, Mark is always banging on about business reviews. So it would be fantastic if you could please share a review on the podcast player you're using right now. And if you haven't subscribed already, please follow us so you can hear it first every Tuesday morning. All right, let's kick off number five. Iris Smith is the founder of The Quick Flick, and she shares with Mark why she decided to knock back $300,000 investment when she appeared on the reality pitch show Shark Tank. Were you invited onto the Shark Tank? Yeah, so the producer saw that article in the Daily Mail. Yep. And I, I didn't realise, but they were obviously also looking for potential candidates. Yep. She reached out to me. At first I thought it was like a scam email <laughs> and said, you know, I saw your article. Um, I'm looking for potential people to audition for the show. I really think you should audition. And I was still kind of working on my self-confidence a little bit then. And I thought, well, I've only been doing this for three months. Like people who go on the show, in my mind, I had this preconceived idea. People who go on the show, they're, you know, years into their business journey. So I sort of put it off for a little bit and then the submissions were due at midnight. I was packing orders and working still. I think it was one in the morning. So I'd missed the submission cutoff. And I don't know, this voice in my head just said, fuck it, Iris, just do it. Just get your phone out and just film it. So uh, it's like the rawest video ever. Like just, a pitch. Like a pitch. Yeah, my pitch, yeah. yeah. And I'm sorry, I speak to the camera. Hello, I'm Iris. This is my product. I was showing them. Just very... It's just authentic, I think. Yeah, yeah. Submitted it. The next day, literally, I got a phone call. I loved the video. It was so natural and raw. I'm going to take this, you know, to my boss and show them straight away. And then after that, another call. We want you to come in and do like a fake Shark Tank pitch. So I did that. That was successful. I actually demonstrated on some of the male producers. They loved it. (laughs) And yeah, and then uh, long story short, ended up going on the show. Um, so that would have been, I think we filmed it in February, 2018. So at the start of. How old were you, were you in February, 2018? I think I was I just turned 22 at the time. And, um, yeah, so we, we filmed that, uh, the, so I, I got a deal on the show. Um, I think I went in wanting, um, I think I had valued my business at 
3 million at that point. Um, and had, and was asking for a a 10% share in exchange for $300,000. And I ended up, um, getting the $300,000 for a 27 and a half percent share on the show. Long story short, I didn't end up taking the deal. Um, well, one of the reasons is they film it in February and they're obviously flat out with filming. So you don't actually hear from them for quite a few weeks later. So I only really got in touch with them pretty much just before the show was going to air. Did we start that whole process of the due diligence, which is obviously a really long process. And my business exploded in that period. It went gangbusters. I think by my fourth or fifth month, I was already doing half a million dollars in revenue a month. It was just an insane amount of growth. Um, I'd had Priceline come to me and approach me to go into retail stores. So a lot of the things I'd gone in there wanting assistance and help with kind of just naturally came about. And I just reassessed everything and I thought, I don't, this isn't the right decision anymore. Um, Why did you want the 300000 in the first place? What, what, what were you seeking the capital for? Well, the main thing was launching into retail and, and funding new um, product development, which I was able to do on my own during that period. I had one of the world's largest influencers, Huda Katan, who owns Huda Beauty. I think she had like 40 million followers at the time. She loved the product and she started writing about it on her blog and making videos about how, how this was the best eyeliner she'd ever used. And how did she find out about the eyeliner? I think just through social media. Her team just reached out and said, you know, we'd like to try it and have you send it to her. Um, and I also did this like very interesting uh, box that I sent it to her because I thought, okay, this lady's obviously getting thousands of packages. So I had um, a friend of mine do a self-portrait on this box, a painting of her. Of her. Yeah, and then inside the box we packed all the eyeliner stamps. So I think it was such an interesting package as well. It kind of inspired her to speak about it a little bit more. So that completely changed the business. And then obviously Shark Tank came about. That was great exposure, but not just that, it was all the publicity that followed after it. And what did that prove to you then? So what I mean by that is... Mm. You thought you needed $300,000 to spend on marketing or advertising or maybe employ a couple of marketing people, whatever you were going to do with that 300 grand. But instead of, and you had to give, you were prepared to give away 10% and they offered to you 25% to be given away. Mm. So you save yourself equity, you save yeah. your equity. Sometimes we think we need money to do some marketing, but in fact, if we just get an influencer or someone who actually really digs our product, mm. we can do without all that fancy stuff that $300,000 spend. Yeah. I I think the main thing was uh, learning the confidence in myself. I actually remember the moment when I made that decision. I'm not going to go through with this because everyone around me was saying, you should take it. Um, My partner at the time was saying, it's such a good deal. How could you, how could you be so stupid to turn it down? I was the only one actually questioning it. Is this really right for me? And I thought in that moment, I remember making the decision and I was like, I'm going to fucking do this myself. Back yourself. Yeah. It was that real, like, I have got this. I don't need anyone else at this point. I can do this myself. And I did. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a big learning curve for me that, you know, I, I had the ability to do it myself and I had up until that point and yeah, one post can change everything. <laughs> yeah, totally. But it also sort of talks about patience. I mean, like just don't be in a hurry, mm. you know, like because that one post could, may or may not come, but that 300,000, even if you hadn't have, had no chance, for example, of um, getting who to do, put it up on on her social media. That three hundred thousand probably wouldn't have produced 
what you wanted to no, produce anyway. I don't think so. Looking you, back, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, irrespective of that, the $300,000 would not have done that. And a lot of people think, oh, should I just need 300 grand or half a million dollars and I can really spend it on more marketing and et cetera, when in actual fact what the product is saying to you is, no, no, chill, just do this over time mm. and just build organically. Yeah. As opposed to just rushing it with a whole lot of cash and giving away equity. Yeah. And then you've got a partner you've got to deal with, mm-hmm. which is, you know, sometimes not that easy. You know, yeah, like agreed. everyone thinks partners are going to do everything, going to fix all my problems for me. In actual fact, sometimes they create problems. Number four is Disputify. Now, this is founded by Jack Bloomfield, who is about 21 years old. And uh, he discusses how he manages market risk, something that uh, we all have to be aware of coming into the new year. When you look at someone starting a business for the first time and uh, the main concern is, well, if I start a business and I've currently got a job, um, I've got to quit that job and I've got to go and start this business. Now, like there are risks associated with starting the business, but you'll find if most people, like when you actually look at what are you most scared about, most often than not, it's what people are going to say if it doesn't work. And it's the ideas and those opinions and everyone else. It's like the what if, and it's not the what if of the actual risk of like, I might go bankrupt. It is the, what is everyone else going to think of me when I go bankrupt? So if you're able to kind of separate the actual risk from the perceived opinions of everyone else based on what you're about to do going wrong, um, I think those are two very different things that people intertwine. And I do it quite often just without even knowing about it. Instinctively you do it. Yeah, I, I, I try not to when I pick myself up on yeah. it, but I just find that just kind of how society and just the way things are wide, um, it, it, the two things almost go hand in hand and I don't believe they should. You cannot be worried about what other people are going to think because they're going to think what they're going to think. You know, like, and to be frank with you, the people who you trust, who are actually your friends, they all know how hard Jack works and they also know how hard and how committed Jack was to the purpose, the objective by changing the way things happen and building a good trust platform between consumer and vendor. That's all that matters. It doesn't really matter what the opinions of others are at the end of the day and you'll never meet them. They'll never have any impact on your life. You're a young man. How do you deal with that proposition when you are confronted with risk and therefore potential failure? Because I know there was a period there where you're not liquidity, but you spent a lot of the money, which normally happens, and you've got to raise some more money and that's hard to do. And you're thinking, shit, you know, I've raised money from Mark. He's going to think I'm whatever, I'm a dud. Yep, not doing good enough. Not doing good enough. How how did you deal with that? Um, I mean, there probably is no good process there. Maybe what's worked for me is I kind of figure out exactly, well, if something is going wrong, what exactly do we need? Like what are the possible things that we could do to solve the situation in front of us? Um, And so, for example, if you use the liquidity example, um, one of those things is, well, either we figure out ways that we can make more money within the business to self-sustain. Well, that's probably another six, 12 months away. God knows. So this is not going to solve the immediate problem. Um, The alternative there is to be able to go out and raise more money from the market. And it is hard too, because once again, even raising a second round of capital for a business is something that I'd never done. Hadn't raised a first, hadn't raised a second. And you don't really know if you're doing it the right way. And I think that analysis paralysis, um, what we were talking about earlier, is almost like if you have done something, if you've done something before and it's either worked or it didn't, the idea of you going back and so say, for example, you have someone, they start a business, they raise some capital originally, um, doesn't work out, no one gives them any more money, things go bad. For them to be able to look back on that situation, go back and raise more money for a new business would be automatically harder. But then to then go and raise money a second time in that business is almost going to be from the get-go the fear, the insecurity, oh my God, this is going to be a repeat of what's going on. So it's almost like these past experiences that I have never had, um, I think probably serve me in a really good way where I look at it and I just objectively go, well, what do we need and how are we going to do it? As opposed to kind of 
taking then into all of kind of like, once again, what could go wrong? What are those past experiences? What, what do I fear? Um, and that's a factor, but it's less so of kind of almost like post-traumatic stress from kind of past events gone wrong, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, no, I, I get it. I mean, we use language in our business and we are confronted by language by investors. What's the burn rate? As soon as someone uses that word, there is an assumption or presumption that you are spending their money or burning their money. Burn rates, are, is, for me, is a word or a phrase that should not be used. Maybe investment rate. You may say, why, why so? Why? Well, because it, it, it sort of conjures up ideas that you are burning money in a burn rate. And as soon as we start talking about burn rate internally and or with others externally, it sort of starts to build in your brain, the proprietor, the entrepreneur, someone like you, that you're sort of behind the eight ball. You're not, you're not building something brand new and investable and mm. uh, looking good and something worth reinvesting in, but you're sort of- Just this, eventually spending this pot of money, which correct. will go to zero one day. Correct. And, and it's yeah. a burn rate. It's like, it's, it's, it's sort of like chasing its own tail and it's going to fly up its own ass at the end of the day. It's burn rate is a bad phrase, but unfortunately investors and, and, and CFOs and people who run businesses use that terminology a lot because, you know, it's just something we throw around, but it actually implants something in our brain. And I think language is really important and you're a very positive guy, but I actually think it's really important that you are positive and you don't put a positive spin on things, but you look at the positive side of it. In other words, this is a business that has been invested in and is building something. It will require more money to continue to build it. This is the thing we're trying to achieve. It sounds very small and very slight change to the language, but I think it's incredibly important when it comes to how you present in front of an investor. Definitely. And I mean, investors and like I've been through an experience now where the first round of funding that we raised was from Australian investors and mostly like yourself and family offices and those conversations, like we were lucky, um, people like you who are willing to invest in things that are more of a, like from an ex- from an Australian point of view, doing what we're doing seems like a long shot and doesn't seem like something like most people would not put a dollar near it. Whereas you go to the US, for example, and the language and the way that they look at things, it is, we are looking for things that will change the world, change the way that people do things on a scale that actually matters. And that's the conversation there. And I do think that is the one thing when you look at kind of Australia and startup ecosystem, maybe even just general business. Um, people like to almost take where it should be, nail it down four notches and like that's the level that you should be talking at. Whereas in the US, it's flipped. It's like this is the level it is. You should be talking four notches above that because that's where it could be um, and that's what you're selling. So it's just a completely different mindset and at least just what I found. And that's an interesting one. So Prior to going to the US, what was your mindset? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm from Brisbane, um, born and bred Australian. So like I've grown up here, it, it, like the the standard, I catch myself all the time, like um, to even explain to someone that I've just met what I do, I almost, I, I purposely under explain it. Like, what do you do? I run a software company. Well, it's not, it is, but like you got to ask another question, I'll then explain it. But it's like, in the US, for example, you're way more forthcoming with what you do and there's a different conversation. So yes, I, I have almost been growing up in a society where it is those four notches below and it does. And I think that's where you have a lot of Australians and it is changing, but you have a lot of Australians who will start to go over to the US and look to raise money from US investors. And if there's one thing they do wrong, it is not speaking the lingo, not positioning the business in a way that's really impactful. And it's even like all the way that's raising money. It's down the end, but like even the idea stage itself, like to be able to go out there and do something that in your mind might seem 
cool, but it's, it's just building a business off the wrong metrics. Um, whereas profitability comes first where that is important for a small business. But when you're looking for a hyper growth startup, um, it's not what those sort of investors are looking for. Um, and it's not the returns they're looking for either. You're not going to get the same return out of Airbnb as you would with a bakery, for example. So yeah, it's just a different way to frame it. And it's hard too, because until you go and you do it, you have these conversations and you learn the hard way because people say no. And then you've got to be open to ask why, like, what's the problem? Why aren't you willing to invest in us? And you get the feedback of, well, you know, we just don't really think the market size is big enough. And then you go, well, hang on a second, but no, the market size is big enough. And then you start to frame that conversation in an entirely different way. You prove the pitch, that one little bit, great. There's one new thing you're doing. So it's, yeah, I think you just learn through hearing feedback, just trying to improve, um, but you've just got out there and do it. And if you can find someone who has already done it, whether it's raising money, whether it's starting a business, whether it's just coming up with an idea that's worthwhile, just find someone who's literally done it before and have a conversation and just make sure you're on the right path. So what did Jack Bloomfield learn when you did your, your Series B or your second race? What did you learn about the language? What did you learn about the pitch? We have no idea here in Australia <laughs> of the way they think. Yeah, I mean, I might, but only because I've been exposed to it. But generally speaking, we are a totally different culture here. Um, and you're right, market share, market size, penetration, all those things, they're really important to them. And you've got to be able to prove it too. You can't just say, oh, well, this is what I think. You've got to have some sort of logic associated with it. One, your energy and your passion about the thing that you believe in, that's important to them. The second thing is the ethic of it. What problem are you trying to solve? What is the ethic associated with this? And the third thing is, what's the logic? What I mean by that is, how do you intend to deliver? What are the tools that you've got or you're developing that would allow you to deliver the ethic that you passionately believe in? Number three is Model Co and Emco Beauty founder, Shelley Sullivan who has held her position as CEO for 25 years. Now, Shelley has collaborated with big names over the years, but no one compares to this collab you're about to hear. With Model Co, mm-hmm. um, I mean, being strategic is really important, but what are some of the biggest achievements in your strategy thinking and the way you thought? With Model Co, we've been on many different um, journeys with big celebrities. Um, we've worked with Elmick Furson for three years, Rosie Huntington-Whiteley, um, Hayley Baldwin, now Hayley Bieber. But I, I would say probably one of the biggest challenges and probably one of the most rewarding um, projects that I've ever worked on was... Um There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Model Co for Carl Lagerfeld. So that came about um, off the back of the success of Hayley Baldwin. Um, we were featured on the front cover of Women's Wear Daily, a great licensing agency called DMA United in New York, saw that this Australian beauty brand had collaborated with a, with a talent and wrote to me and said, um, would you be interested in doing a Carl Lagerfeld beauty collection? 
And at the time I didn't know, I'm like, Carl Lagerfeld and beauty. I mean, to work with the biggest fashion icon that there ever has been, of course you'd want that opportunity. So um, we embarked on a journey of a tender process that started with 27 brands. It got down to a few brands. I went to Paris a couple of times and pitched to the CEO of the business and and a lot of brands that tried to go for a 10-year deal and I walked in and I just intuitively knew, no, this is a quick shot, two-year deal. Um, so I, I, my strategy, I never saw the others, but I know it was completely different to theirs. Um, the world was going into social media and digital and all the beauty brands, were, everything was digital. I'm like, no, this is an old, an old school brand that has to be bricks and mortar. So I put forward a strategy to do um, a global beauty collaboration with Carl. There were 52 products. We had lip glosses with lights and mirrors and this kind of all this technology. And I said to the CEO of the company, you know, what do you want to achieve? They said, we want to do a big beauty event where everybody else was saying, you don't do a beauty event these days. It's all about digital. So we ended up executing probably one of the biggest beauty collaborations in history. Um, we took over Place Vendôme. We stopped the streets of Paris with 100 lookalike Carl heads. And we um, had this huge event in Paris. Um, we call it Painting Paris Pink. So we literally took over Paris, achieved the unimaginable and had this incredible event. Um, to celebrate the launch, we ended up in 3,000 stores in 27 countries around the world. Wow. And I knew that day that I got that email, we were going to do it. Wow, that's a, so cool. And Carl Lagerfeld is the coolest dude ever, like the way he walks around. It just there's something about him is a mystery. I've never heard him speak. He's yeah, just so, like just appears so and disappears. He is, um, he's actually, I think he's been passed now for about two years. Yeah, but he's a cool um, dude. But he was, um, when I met him, he, met he was him? a lot shorter than what, I thought he was going to be. Do you have glass, like dark yes, glasses? Yes, yeah, glasses. We actually sat, um, we, we, throughout the duration of the three years, I worked a lot in Paris. So we travelled around the world, but I worked really close with the Lagerfeld team. So I spent a lot of time in Paris there and he had his office set up and um, he used to obviously, um, he was creative director of Chanel and uh, Fendi and obviously his his own brand, it was a licensed brand. So he would come in and sign off on the collections. So he'd come in and they'd have meetings and he'd sign off and give his creative direction and off he'd go and, I was in Paris one day and we were just starting the, the relationship and I met with him and shared with him the lip gloss and the light and um, he had various other products that we were creating together and he seemed like a lovely guy, um, very funny. Told me I was funny when I was spraying him with our shimmer in a can. Um, but, yeah, I mean, look, it was a great opportunity. I think, I think really um, that was a pinnacle part for me in my career and the brands because MCO Beauty didn't exist then um, and the strategy was always, okay, after we launched Carl Lagerfeld, we're going to go and put Model Co in all these stores around the world but by the time I got to the end of Carl Lagerfeld, there were so many brands in the premium market. I saw a niche in the mass stage market and said, well, you know, model car will still be what it is. Um, but then we launched MCO Beauty and I went in a different direction. But definitely working with the team at Carl Lagerfeld and um, Al Weeks and all of my creative team, um, it, was, it was the most incredible journey um, and one that I don't think, I don't know if you can ever top that. What a buzz. Who else? Actually, I have had a phone call from someone who I can't say and most of like, wow, if you get that deal, that's bigger than Carl Lagerfeld. But who knows, Mark? I could be doing a collaboration again quite soon. I mean, you might be doing a, let's do a men's deal and you, <laughs> I and, I, you and I can collaborate. I know. You know, Woolies have come to us and said, you know, do you want to do some men's products? So, you know what? We're, we're up for a challenge. I better go and get some surgery there before I do it all. <laughs> Number two, doesn't come as a surprise to me. The inspired unemployed boys, who's got to be the nicest guys in Aussie entertainment, somehow they managed to convince MB to do a shoey in the studio and we caught it all on camera. They tell Mark how it all started. Yeah, yeah we, so we made this little Instagram page it's called Pine Tree TV and we made like probably six or seven skits and it kind of took off around home just like our families and stuff. But that kind of got us thinking like and then we all got jobs and we all just stopped. But then it was about three years later 
I was working as a carpenter, but I never wanted to be a chippy because my dad was a bricklayer and I just seen how fucked it was on his body. And I was like, I never want to be a tradie. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I fell into it because there's not much else. There's not much opportunity down there. It's like either a school teacher or you're a tradie. And Jack was a tradie. And, but you did a lot of traveling mm-hmm. and he's like, I'm going over to Europe. Let, let's go. And I was like, nah, I'm about to start my apprenticeship. <laughs> Even though I didn't want to, but I was about 23 at the time. I was like, I need to kind of get my shit sorted. I've kind of been fucking around for a while. And then he's like, no, let's go. We'll work towards something we want to do for the rest of our lives. Like, let's, we'll go to we'll get like a business or we'll like make videos. And because we both knew we yeah. wanted to do that stuff. And then I hang up. I was like, nah, this is like the first time I'm going to say no to a trip. I got to get my shit sorted. And then I went in, I spoke to my mom and she's like, you know what? Just fucking live your life. You only get one shot at it. Just go, you'll be right. It's just a year of your life. And mm. just come back and do it if it doesn't work out. So I was like, fuck it. Called him back. And I was like, let's go. <laughs> Literally like, half an hour later. <laughs> we left like two months after that. And we went over to Europe and we went over there and like, let's make videos. We really wanted to make videos and like make mm. kind of funny travel, like vlogs, I think. Yeah, skits and vlogs and skits stuff. Skits and vlogs and just whatever. And, but we didn't think that was going to be our job. Yeah, we that wasn't like, the business plan. We were like, let's start like an acai bowl business or. Yeah. Um, we're trying to look at getting a cafe up in bar and like, we're just trying to think. Yeah, this trade idea, like. Like Airbnb, but for tradesmen. Kind of like Antarctica, I guess. Yeah, yeah, But in a more... We're just trying to think We just had all these dreams. <laughs> but, but that was our hobby, was making videos. That was what we thought was fine. So we like like doing it. We liked, I guess, starting this Instagram page and getting the attention and trying to build it out. Because we just had so yeah. much fun making videos. And like, it was a pure... We just genuinely didn't... Because we weren't from the city. So we had... Making money on Instagram we or brain deals or anything, that was foreign language. Shops. That, we we had didn't no, even know you could make money. We had Instagram. no idea. We just... There was no plan. Anymore. No, yeah. no. We just... But we, there was a definitely a structure and plan to grow as, you know, and I feel like once we started, that's when we got, or me personally and Falcon as well, like we definitely got obsessed and we're like, okay, we've started. And then the goal was we cannot go home because we we're making a fool of ourselves. Like we're tradies with a reputation at home, you know, not that that means anything, but. No, it does. It does though. Especially when you're younger. Yeah, like for sure. What we're doing, if you couldn't do that at home and then no. go on the job site the next day. No. Just because like. Dressing as girls. Wasn't really like, that, you know? They give you shit. Yeah, just get shit put on you. Yeah, because if, like, if you're an apprentice anyway, especially oh, if you're yeah. an apprentice, because like. Apprentices always get shit yeah. put on anyway. Like, yeah, exactly. Go, go, go find me the box yeah. of sparks or the left-handed <laughs> screwdriver or all that shit. Yeah. Like, and they're all dad jokes, but they, they actually do. Yeah. And, and when it's you do it. worse because I was I was like three years out of my apprenticeship. Yeah. So it was worse for you. Yeah. <laughs> worse for me. And, and when you're doing this stuff um, and like not many people are following you, it doesn't seem like you're legit. So yeah. people are like, Yo, you're just doing that for nothing. Like what's wrong with you? Mm. And then when you started, like when we started to get a bit of a following, people took us a little bit more serious. I'm like, yeah. all right, now. So, that was, so at the start, it's it's really hard because everyone's like, "What the fuck are these guys doing? What the freak?" Was it called the Inspired Unemployed then? Yeah, yeah. Right at the beginning. Yeah. Yep. So you came up with the name. Yeah. Well, How did yep. you get the name? <laughs> so we got we got I think we because you did a couple of skits on your page and then we're like, "Let's start a new page," and I'm just really go for it. And we got stuck in this Airbnb in France. We got snowed in actually, and we were, it was just so gross. It was like the floor was just condensation, like water everywhere. We were pretty rattled because we just left summer in Oz. All our mates oh. like drinking, having fun, and we went over to Europe and win the French Alps. And it was so dark, and we were like this snow blizzard, and we didn't have any friends. And we were just like, "What the fuck did we? Come what are we doing?" <laughs> and we had no, not much money. Like, and we're blowing all our money on these Airbnbs that weren't even good because we're in the middle of their um, school holidays. So it was just so busy. So we had to get the shittest Airbnbs for and we're, and a lot of money, so money for us. Yeah, you know, yeah. we're just broke travelers. And um, and then we were in there, and we, we were just making video after video. And then you know we had to start the page. So. We're just like, you know, what are we? I think it only took maybe an yeah, hour we to realize. Translator, we're like, what are we? We're like, we're inspired, but we're broke. And it just, yeah. I think, like, I think we'll look up, the name. We're looking up words for 
being poor or broke and unemployed come up. Yeah. We're like, oh my God, that's perfect. Inspired, yeah. unemployed. And we're like, done. And then we just made the page right then and there. And and then, then it, you know, we were over there in Europe for oh, six months, just literally working on this page so hard. We were doing five skits a week of so scripting, filming, editing, I'm not much scripting what's going on back then, but you know, five days a week while we're trying to have this holiday with our mates. So there was a lot of work and we, we'd go to a cafe twice a week and write our goals down. And like, there was, you okay. know, looking back at it. Our number fair. one goal back then was to be able to work from a cafe. That was like, <laughs> yeah. that's the dream, like to work from a cafe. That was all we wanted. And, and we kind of thought it could lead us into like maybe getting extra gigs. I'd be like, Oh, if we get mm. a volume, maybe we get like a TV extra gig one, like every now and again, or yeah, that's what the kind of we're working towards. You might not have had a business plan. And you probably never knew what your product was going to be. And you probably knew, didn't realise you could get, you said earlier, you, you probably didn't realise you could get advertising or sponsors to, to, to kick it along. Did you have one objective though? Like, Yeah, so one was to go home t- with 10,000 followers. Because right. you know how on Instagram you get the 10K? Yeah, yeah. And it looks more legit. Yeah, yeah. that was like that literally, the amount, like, amount of followers we, ever. We used to look at people with a page and I remember this one guy that did videos, Dunny at home, and he was killing it at the time. He had 50,000 followers and we were like, how the hell, like, we're looking at him like the prime minister. Like, how do you yeah. get 50,000 followers? That's impossible. Yeah. And our goal was just to get to 10,000 before we went home. So we didn't look so much like a joke. And I feel like that short term goal or whatever we looked at as the time, maybe a long term goal, that was the main mm. goal, to be yeah, honest. Like six months to do it. Yeah. And, and it was just an obsession for me personally, like mm. just to get there, like just to grow well, quick. Yeah. So we'll listen. I think a photo of Gary V. Yeah. They yeah. listen to a lot of him and he's just like, you got to post, post, post. So we're listening to a lot of him and Tony Robbins. Like that's where yeah, yeah, we're yeah. that inspiration from. And that's cool. Like, yeah. Like big time. Gary V. and Tony. And you said something really interesting then, Jack. Like you said, um, obsessed. Um, because I, I, I think once you find a one goal, 10,000, mm. whatever it is, doesn't matter how modest. And if you become obsessed about it, that's the, they're two yeah. important ingredients mm. to, just kicking it off anyway. Mm. Forget about all the other shit. <laughs> you know, what's the product and all that stuff. Like uh, just get a goal and get obsessed about it. Otherwise you sit around planning forever. Exactly, you never yeah. fucking do anything. And, uh, and you gave yourself six months, 10,000, and uh, I want to make sure. And, and the, the emotional part of it was, I don't want to go home and look like a fuck with And I think, you know, we'll just, over that six months, we're just building this skill set. Like it's like a new new craft we're building. Like mm-hmm. we're building our editing skills, our our, our production, our, our um, scripting, like our comedy, everything was getting built without us even realising. So because we're just having so much fun. Yeah, you didn't realise it. That's important. Yeah. Finally, our most downloaded episode ever for this year is Gavin Rubenstein, the real estate agent. Now a bit of a personality in the media game at the moment. He's best known for his role on Amazon Prime's hit show Lux Listings Sydney. And then delving into the practice side of things, what trainers I could look at to get better at my practice. Um, and I learned kind of early on from a guy called Mark McLeod. I don't know if you've come in contact. With, he's still my coach today. He's the CEO of Growth for Ray White. In my opinion, this guy is just, he is a, he is a savant of the real estate game. And it's, it's a huge contradiction because you meet him and the word savant versus how he acts are like completely polar opposites. But his practical approach and knowledge is, in my opinion, second to none. And he said this thing that changed my whole practice together, which was frequency builds trust, you know? And so how do I apply that to me making phone calls? Frequency builds trust. He was like, everyone will select an agent for a different kind of, you know, prerequisite list. What's always on that list is is trust. So the more frequently you check in with someone, the more they're going to trust you. So I was like, how can I apply that to what I'm doing to make sure I get one step closer to where I want to go? Okay. If I 
can unearth or identify a connection with someone on the other end of the phone that they're interested in real estate, that I'm not wasting time, mine or theirs. I'm going to frequently check in with these people to the point that when they are ready to sell, they may not be ready today, they're going to engage me or at least give me an opportunity to pitch for their services. But it's a long game, so you play the long game. I, I, I'm playing the long game now. Now yeah. I'm playing the long game. It's not even now when the likes of the show and the likes of the new brand that's coming out, it's not, I'm not doing it for now. I'm doing it to get the next generation of people who want to be real estate agents. But how did you, want to build. where'd you get the patience, Gavin, at that time to play that as a 20 year old, that is a long game. Um, you're thinking, should you know, they're probably paying you a small retainer and maybe you got a- Not even, 2,700 a month. Okay. So <laughs> it's a small retainer <laughs> and, uh, and you're probably thinking, well, how can I earn a quid? Um, you know, how am I going to get, get get on top of this? So that is at 20, that's playing a long game. I think so. I think it's hard to be patient when you're ambitious. I think it's that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I struggle There's with- There's a tension between the huge. two. Huge. And I, um, and I'm very ambitious. Like I talk about this first 15 years for me has just been the foundation of what I'm about to springboard off. Cause the real story in my view will be written over the next 10 years, 20 years. That's where, that's the, the, the playoff season for me, the postseason, if you like, um, I, I, I don't Where do actually, you get the patience from that? Don't, don't know the answer. I think um, there are certain aspects of my life I'm extremely patient and there are others I'm just When you're not. impatient, what do you do? A lot of these young guys come in and they don't get success. They get frustrated by the roller coaster and the rigors of real estate because let's face it, you know, you get punched in the mouth, metaphorically speaking, yeah, yeah. from morning till night. And that's why most people fail because they quit. They don't want to take it for a long period of time. What would you say to them so they don't quit? Um, you know, if you want to build your business to a high level in this industry, what you need to do is be patient, be able to deal with rejection, have a plan and make sure that your ambitions every single day map towards that plan. And for me, I knew that's what I needed to do in order to get to where I wanted to go. And so I, my perspective on it was not, shit, I got to pick up the, the phone and call these strangers and I don't want to do it and I don't want to be feared of re- rejection, which a lot of young guys do. And you hear that tonality. Hey, I'm Gavin calling from Red yeah, White City. I was pumped, man. I was ready. I was coming into the room. I was, I was loving what I was doing. My, I shift my perspective on it to say, if I can do this well, it'll take me to the next step, which gets me closer to kind of where I want to go. So I would identify an opportunity. And then I just frequently check in with these people and I'd have fun with it. I'd be personable on the phone to the point where like three years in, I would be calling people and their home lines. I wouldn't even have to say it's Gavin speaking. Gav, how you doing? What's happened down the street? What's happened up the road? What happened with that sale? And they knew my product knowledge coming into it was second to none because I knew I had to give people value in order for them to want to speak to me. You're a real estate agent, dude. People don't like you from from the start to begin with. You need to break that barrier and you need to give people value if you want to be taken seriously. Plus, you know, in my market, you talk about some of these greats. Um, a lot of them are older. So me being young was very unique in the double bay market. So to break into that, I knew my, my edge had to be my my product knowledge. And that's kind of just what I did year after year after year. And um, that in combination with the likes of those negotiations I told you about, just kind of snowballed to the point of, um, if I continue to do the right thing by people, if I continue to add value to people's lives, um, if I continue to grow and build this brand, you know, it can, it can only end up in a good place over time, you know, and that's just compounded and it's got a very long way to go, but I'm on the way. But one of the things I think is really interesting what you just said, um, because all, a good brand is a trusted brand and, uh, and the starting point for an agent is, I don't trust the agent. That's that's the starting point because hundred you know, percent. No, no, that's a general view, okay? It's because true it's true. you just think the agent's in there for the commission. Hundred percent. Good. Say later transaction on the next deal. So what you said about trust is quite interesting. Frequency builds trust. With your your you know mentor told you that, or your coach told you that. Still today, Mark. Yep. Yeah. And I, I just want to break that down a little bit because uh, one of the things 
that I've found over years is that, you know, what we are familiar with, we trust. And there's one way to make something, someone familiar about something, and that is to put it in front of them all the time. So one of the reasons people advertise, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, you, you might not even look, or Harvey Norman, you might not even hear, look at that. You might not be interested in buying yeah, a lounge suite or a box. It's just Harvey Norman, Harvey yep. Norman. Yep. It's frequency, yep. builds, builds familiarity. Yep. Um, builds trust, yep. and that's an important tenet in any brand. Hundred percent. That's probably, in particularly in your brand in real estate world, trust is a big one. Key, a big one. Key. And uh, so it's it's very interesting. Your coach has told you that because I, I often say familiarity builds trust, and frequency builds familiarity. So he's gone one step beyond that. And it doesn't matter how the frequency is. So in your case, you can't afford to advertise. You're not going to go and advertise nope. like Harvey Norman does. So, so what you do is you advertise is you ring people up. Correct. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you check out the full episodes from the list. This show is a success because of you. You know that. So please let Mark know what you want to hear more of in 2023 by emailing support at mentor.com.au. That's all in the show notes. Talk to you soon.